Ahead of former President Trump's criminal court appearance, former Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance tells us what to expect. I'm concerned about security. It will be a real challenge to ensure that things function safely and smoothly. For Sunday, April 2nd, it's All Things Considered. Scott Detrow. This hour, Israelis continue to take to the streets in support of democracy. How are Palestinians feeling? Democracy is built on equality. Without equality, there is no democracy. Pokemon fans say goodbye to the show's stars, Ash Ketchum and Pikachu. It's a hard goodbye. It's kind of like saying goodbye to a friend. And jazz. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Cleanup is underway in Little Rock, Arkansas, after the city was hard hit in a tornado outbreak that spanned several states, leaving at least 26 people dead, including five in Arkansas. Daniel Breen from member station KUAR has more. Parts of Little Rock are unrecognizable after an EF3 tornado with winds up to 165 miles per hour cut a roughly 30-mile path of destruction. Now a small army of volunteers is cutting trees and helping residents secure what's left. Becca Webb said her father's West Little Rock home is a complete loss, but she's been heartened by the response. It's just been amazing. Up on the corner today, it's set up with pizza and snacks just for anybody that just needed it and stuff. I mean, the humanity is beautiful. The Biden administration approved the state's request for a major disaster declaration. For NPR News, I'm Daniel Breen in Little Rock. Meanwhile, damaging winds are forecast through tomorrow for parts of the Southern Plains. Secretary of State Antony Blinken held a rare phone call with his Russian counterpart today, urging the Kremlin to free a Wall Street Journal reporter arrested while on assignment in Russia last week and accused of spying. NPR's Amy Held has more. The State Department says Blinken spoke with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov Sunday and called for the immediate release of Evan Gerskovich whose detention Blinken says is unacceptable. Russia's readout of the call says Lavrov told Blinken a Russian court will determine the journalist's fate, and it is unacceptable for Washington to whip up a stir. At the same time, Blinken called for the release of Paul Whelan, another American also accused of spying, who has served more than four years of a 16-year prison sentence. Diplomatic relations between Moscow and Washington have been further strained by the detentions. And on the call, Blinken stressed the importance of allowing diplomatic missions to go on. On Friday, President Biden urged Russia to let Gerskovich go. Amy Held, NPR News. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is throwing his hat into the ring for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. NPR's Barbara Sprunt has more. The announcement places Hutchinson in a small Republican field that includes former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Others, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, are expected to join the field. Hutchinson told ABC's This Week that a formal announcement will be made later this month in his home state. As I've traveled the country for six months, I hear people talk about the leadership of our country, and I'm convinced that people want leaders that appeal to the best of America and not simply appeal to our worst instincts. It's unclear whether Hutchinson's candidacy can make inroads in a party that remains firmly devoted to Trump. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court tomorrow will consider disciplining three former state prosecutors. It concerns their conduct during an investigation of a state drug lab. A board that monitors lawyer conduct recommends the former assistant attorneys general be sanctioned for withholding evidence during the prosecution of former state chemist Sonia Farrick. She was convicted of tampering with drug samples for her own use, which led to the dismissal of thousands of convictions. The state will pay hundreds of police officers in Massachusetts who claimed they missed opportunities for promotion because of a biased exam. The $40 million settlement ends a decades-long legal fight by black and Hispanic officers who challenged the fairness of the sergeant's civil service promotional exam. An attorney for the officers said the state also agreed to implement a new test that focuses on job ability rather than memorizing things from a textbook. Massachusetts advocates are expressing concern about federal efforts to make the overdose antidote Narcan more available by offering it for sale without a prescription. The drug is already distributed widely in Massachusetts. Joanne Peterson with the family support group Learn to Cope says if Narcan is no longer covered as a prescription, then buyers may need to pay the full cost, up to $150 for a kit. If Narcan is not as accessible because it's too expensive, then our fatality numbers could actually rise even higher. Health insurers say they will decide whether to continue covering Narcan as more information about the change is released in coming months. The Massachusetts Environmental Police said the Cape Cod Canal was closed at noon today after a North Atlantic right whale and her calf were spotted in the canal. It was closed to traffic by the Army Corps of Engineers and is closed whenever a right whale is spotted in the area. The mother and calf are part of a group of at least 79 whales spotted in Cape Cod Bay last week by the Center for Coastal Studies. In sports, the Red Sox beat Baltimore this afternoon at Fenway Park by a score of 9-5. to five. Clear skies, lows in the 20s overnight, mostly sunny, mid-50s tomorrow, 47 in Boston. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. On Tuesday, former President Donald Trump is expected to appear in a Manhattan courtroom to face charges stemming from a historic indictment. As we have said over and over the last few days, we still do not know what specific charges are facing the former president. We will not know that until the indictment is unsealed. But they are connected to Trump's alleged role in covering up hush money paid to adult film actress Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign. That's an investigation that began years ago under then-Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. Given his role in initiating the probe, we thought it'd be a good time to check in with him about this moment, what led to it, and what might come next. Cy Vance, welcome to All Things Considered. Good afternoon, Scott. Thank you for having me. So to put it mildly, there's been a lot of criticism at the moment of your successor, Alvin Bragg, a lot of commentary, especially from Republicans. You've got a unique vantage point here, so I want to start with that. And I'd like to start with a tweet from Jeb Bush, who I don't think anyone would mistake for a MAGA Republican, uh, because I think that sums up a lot of the pushback that's happening right now. Bush tweeted, Bragg's predecessor, which is you, didn't take up the case. The Justice Department didn't take up the case. Bragg first said he would not take up the case. This is very political, not a matter of justice. In this case, let the jury be the voters. 
What do you make of that general line of criticism? Well, I think the indictment of the president, former president himself, is is an extraordinary event. There's no getting around that. And it's a it's a, an important event legally and culturally. Um, so that's my first reaction is we is that everybody has reason to be uh, very focused on the sort of the severity of, 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 of where we are right now in the divisions within our country. Um, that said, uh, I, I, I also agree with you, Scott, that we need to all hold our fire. Uh, the only person who really knows why he made the decision is Alvin Bragg. And the facts that will support or not support his decision will be laid out when the indictment is dismissed. Until then, I think we all can have our political viewpoints, but we need to let the process play out. You said the only person who knows exactly why this is moving forward at this time is Alvin Bragg. You might be closest to him, though, because you held this job and you were you were D.A. when the initial probe into the former president began. Why did you make that decision? Because, look, prosecutors, we know prosecutors make choices what to investigate, what to charge. Why did you begin that broader investigation? What were you looking for? Well, I'm not going to be able, Scott, to get into the internal conversations of the office, which are confidential and and, and some covered by grand jury privilege. But I will say this, that. Um, I think it's public record that that we commenced an investigation uh, at around the same time as the Southern District of New York did. Uh, I was asked, we were asked by the Southern District of New York to stand down. We did stand down for probably over a year. And then it got to the point where Michael Cohen was indicted and pleaded guilty, and then it stopped. Uh, so that was one reason why we didn't move forward at the beginning. I do want to ask about the timeline here because it's something that's come up a lot over the past few days. These payments happened in the waning days of the 2016 presidential campaign. Michael Cohen uh, provided all of the broad strokes of this to the public in that in that very memorable appearance before Congress, which was in 2019. So a lot of the basic facts here were known while you were still in office. Was this particular uh, dynamic um the, the Stormy Daniels payments, was that part of your investigation? Why didn't this go forward earlier when, when most of these facts were known? Well, I think I've given you the answer with regard to at least one aspect that we were asked to. Uh, we were asked because the federal the federal prosecutors were looking at it. Uh, they had better laws. So, so up until Michael Cohen pleaded guilty, and uh, then this was really something that, uh, that, that the federal government had asked that we not get involved with. But, you know, and also I think it's, I think it's well known that there are, you know, that as a matter of New York law, unlike federal law, there are novel issues uh, around using uh, the false statements statute in connection with committing a crime that violates federal election laws. There's no surprise there or secret there. So there were a number of reasons uh, that caused us to... Um, to, to think carefully. In theory, everyone is treated equally before the law. But in reality, I think it's fair to say it's going to be very different when a former president appears in court, uh, uh, which we expect on Tuesday. I mean, among other things, there's there's Secret Service coordination, you know, on, on how to and on how to make this happen. If you were still in office, how would you be approaching Tuesday? Are there are there any aspects of this you're concerned about? There's a lot of external factors that are just don't happen uh, for ninety nine point nine nine percent of the cases we have. I'm concerned about security. Uh, the state court office is not exactly as uh, 
uh, is different than a federal courthouse. You, you, we have, it's much bigger. Uh, you have many more witnesses, victims, employees, public coming in and out. It will be a real challenge for the PD, the court officers, uh, the investigators in our office to ensure that things function safely and smoothly. So last question, looking ahead to Tuesday, we've talked about concerns about possible violence. We've talked about the fact that we, the public, still do not know the details of these charges and they might be broader. Is there anything else that you are thinking about or looking forward to on Tuesday that you yourself have big questions about? I wouldn't be surprised if there's an attempt to move to somehow get the federal courts involved, either um, directly with the state court first, asking for a continuance until after the primaries or or the election that are upcoming, or filing a federal action as he did with us to try to get the federal courts to perhaps you know have some control over the timing process and scope of the state case it's it, those are things that uh, those are strategies we've seen play out uh, ourselves and i wouldn't be surprised if we see them again that's former manhattan district attorney cyrus vance jr he's now a partner at baker and mckenzie law firm thank you so much for joining us thank you scott appreciate it being here The soon-to-be-unsealed indictment by New York prosecutors has dominated cable news over the past few days. And as is the case with all things Trump and all things politics, really, the story has looked and sounded different depending on which network you watch. We're going to take a closer look at how conservative media has been covering the major story and what that tells us, and there is no better person to talk to about that than NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. Hey, David. Hey, Scott. So you, to put it mildly, spend a lot of time paying attention to conservative media, particularly Fox News. What has the coverage been like over the past few days since this news first broke? Well, there's been a lot of outrage. There's been a lot of uh, really not looking at the underlying facts of the case or the grappling with the fact that Trump clearly has engaged in all kinds of behavior, both in this instance and prior, that at minimum deserve legal scrutiny. You know, I got to say, to be fair to right wing media, there's been a lot of speculation, but there's been a lot of speculation throughout the press because we really don't know very much about what's in the indictments yet at all. But I think it's fair to say that it's gotten kind of apocalyptic. You know, you've seen people claim on Newsmax that there was a constitutional crisis. You've seen people on Fox News talk about this being somehow a third world country by holding major former public officials, in this case, a former president accountable. You've seen people comparing it to Stalinist Russia. You've seen this be called basically the triumph of politics over any sense of prosecutorial discretion. And so you've seen fairly extreme rhetoric in the absence of any facts to evaluate them by. Yeah. And let's focus in on Fox here for a moment. It's been under a lot of scrutiny lately for its role in promoting Trump's lies that he did not lose the 2020 election. Post-January 6th, the network had kept its distance from Trump, relatively speaking, What has their coverage in particular been like since this news broke? Well, in some ways, this is a sweet spot for Fox, right? They've been trying very hard to turn Trump into a non-person in the words of Rupert Murdoch that came out in some of his private correspondence lately. And what they get to do is be anti-Trump. You know, privately, Tucker Carlson has talked about how much he hates Donald Trump. What he's doing now is talking how much the Democrats, how much the prosecutors hate Donald Trump, and it distances himself from that. And what's more, I want to play a little clip of Tucker Carlson, what he told viewers on Fox News, because it gives uh, insight into another angle of rhetoric. Because this is too great an assault on our system, much greater than anything we saw on January 6th. So you heard Tucker Carlson saying it's worse than January 6th itself. So what he gets to do is not defend January 6th. He gets to attack the Democrats uh, through the person of uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg as being worse than the people who participate in the riots and the insurrection at the Capitol. 
a lot of the things you were just saying are things that we have learned because of this major defamation lawsuit that Fox is facing from Dominion Voting Systems. It's hard to have any conversation about Fox and Trump without talking about that. And Fox suffered a significant setback in court on Friday. What happened? There is this defamation suit by Dominion Voting Systems, an election tech company. They alleged that they were defamed by Fox News in these claims repeatedly done after election 2020 uh, that they had shifted votes from then President Donald Trump over to Joe Biden. And the judge said, look, Dominion has proven that these statements are just simply false. And it's basically proven they were defamatory. And the question is whether Fox should be held liable for that. And they they basically rejected this argument. Fox is just saying, look, we're just replaying allegations from very newsworthy people like the then president of the United States and his his lawyers uh, that Dominion did this to him. You know, we're just being reporters here. And the judge says that's not good enough. This clearly is defamatory. And then we've got to head to trial. If Fox can't make that claim, though, what defense does it have when this does go to trial? Well, it's invoking First Amendment principles, and it's saying essentially it's making a larger case publicly that if Fox were to lose this, this is going to harm all kinds of media outlets, including the NPRs of the world, the New York Times is the world and local newspapers as well. What they are arguing is they weren't culpable because Dominion has yet to prove what's called an actual malice standard, and that is that Fox uh, – hosts and stars and other people knowingly invited people on and affirmed statements, knowing the facts to be untrue. The problem for Fox right now is that a whole lot of evidence has already become public as a result of this trial, suggesting that there were a ton of people from top to bottom of Fox that did know that these allegations were not true. And that's part of the legacy Fox is dealing with, both on the air and in court. That's NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. Thanks, David. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Glad you're with us. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. Clear skies, lows in the 20s overnight, mostly sunny mid-50s tomorrow. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu slash ssw. In sports, the Red Sox beat Baltimore this afternoon 9-5 at Fenway Park. Bruins in the second period leading St. Louis 1-0. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974 in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke by phone today with his Russian counterpart, calling on Moscow to release Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who was arrested last week on espionage charges, which the paper denies. Russian news agencies say an explosion tore through a cafe in St. Petersburg today, killing well-known Russian military blogger Vladlin Teratart. Tarovsky. More than a dozen were injured, and so far there's no claim of responsibility. And Japanese composer Ryuichi Sakamoto has died at the age of 71. He was one of the first musicians to incorporate electronic production into popular songs. He also won an Oscar for the music for The Last Emperor. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. When Benjamin Netanyahu became Israeli prime minister again last fall, many predicted that relations between the White House and the right-wing prime minister could get rough, and they certainly have. Tension simmered for a few months before boiling over this past week on an issue that wasn't expected, the future of Israeli democracy. And while leaders on both sides are continually reaffirming the close ties between Israel and the United States, the spat between Netanyahu and President Biden tells us a lot about the current state of politics inside both countries. We're joined now by NPR's Asma Halad, who covers the White House, and NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Good afternoon to you both. Hey there. Good to be with you. Hi, Scott. Daniel, let's start with you. Can you just recap the core issue here? What is the big tension point between Netanyahu's coalition and the White House? Sure. Well, it started when Netanyahu came back into office a a few months ago. He appointed cabinet ministers who are on the far right, who have a history of racism toward Palestinians. They sparked a series of controversies. The White House has basically boycotted these cabinet ministers. And then the U.S. asked Israel to calm tensions in the West Bank. But Israel has conducted some especially deadly military operations there. Israel has made some moves on Jewish settlements in the occupied territory there, which has upset the U.S., But Israel has become consumed by these historic protests over Netanyahu's efforts to remake the judiciary. Major swaths of society have come out saying that they're worried that Israel could become a dictatorship and worried that Israel's far right wants to advance a fundamentalist religious agenda. You have even had Netanyahu's own son falsely claiming on Twitter that the State Department uh, has been fueling these protests. And this has climaxed when President Biden uh, stepped in. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if I can jump in here, Daniel, I mean, you know, traditionally the White House will admonish its allies in private, but I was traveling with Biden the day after Netanyahu had announced this pause on his plans for the judicial reform. And I asked President Biden, you know, how concerned are you about the health of democracy in Israel? I'm very concerned. And I'm concerned that they get this straight. They cannot continue down this road. And I was really struck by what Biden had to say, because what I asked was a fairly open-ended question. But he said he thinks it remains to be seen what happens. Okay, so Asma, let's zoom out a little bit when it comes to what Biden is thinking, what the White House is thinking. As much as they deny it, politicians in the end do things for political reasons, right? Mm -hmm. So what kind Mm -hmm. of pressure is President Biden responding to right now? Well, I think there's dual pressures, right? I mean, he's been facing pressure from some within the Democratic Party to do more uh, in response to Israel. And then he was facing uh, some pressure from Republicans to do less. I will say, you know, within the Democratic Party also, I think there is certainly debate on how to respond to Israel. You have folks within the progressive wing who have been arguing that, you know, the United States government should say, for example, condition aid to Israel because of Israeli settlements in Palestinian territories. But what was really putting a lot of pressure, I think, on the 
Biden White House here, is that there was mounting pressure on this issue of the judicial reforms coming from more mainstream Democratic circles. Uh, earlier this month, you saw more than 90 Democratic lawmakers sign a letter expressing their deep concerns over the plans in Israel to change the structure of the judiciary. We are also, as we were reminded in many different ways this week, at the beginning of a presidential campaign. There are several Republicans running for president. How are top Republicans talking and thinking about this? We're seeing unconditional support from Republicans. You saw the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy issue a statement in support of Netanyahu calling him a patriot. And then you're also seeing, you know, to your point, Republican presidential hopefuls uh, enter this debate and really create this wedge around the politics of supporting Israel. Okay, so Daniel, back to the Israeli side of this. Uh, I think that, I mean, the notable thing at this moment, at least, is that Netanyahu has temporarily backed down. Was it the U.S. pressure that caused Netanyahu to do that? Yeah, that's the, that's an interesting question. I mean, we can't ignore that hours before Netanyahu postponed the legislation, Biden sent a message to Netanyahu to stop the legislation. And Netanyahu knows that he needs the White House on his side. And, you know, in the fallout of all of this, um, senior Israeli officials have been speaking to reporters, including NPR, that um, it's just inappropriate for the U.S. to intervene in Israel's affairs on this question. But, you know, I think the bigger factor in why Netanyahu put the brakes on this was domestic. It was domestic pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. the economy was taking a hit. Netanyahu's approval ratings were plummeting. And you had a historic protests in the streets. You had fighter pilots doing something they've never done, refusing to show up for service. Mm-hmm. So Netanyahu put on the brakes, but did not stop the car entirely. You know, the saga is not over. Netanyahu will be under pressure to try to come up with something that will please the White House, but also to please his own far-right coalition, which really, really wants some kind of judicial overhaul. And that far-right coalition of his has the power to bring him down, to bring down his government. The fact is that U.S. support for Israel is so important to the country, particularly military aid. Is there real concern in Israel or is there conversation about if this tension continues, perhaps down the line, the U.S. could lessen its support for the country or make it more conditional? That is something that previously was unthinkable mm-hmm. to Israelis, that the U.S. would even dare to to withhold or to, to rethink its aid to Israel. And now that is coming up more and more. You know, Israel's survival depends on U.S. military aid. That is why it's such a big deal. That was NPR's Asma Khalid and Daniel Estrin. Thank you. Happy to do it. You're very welcome. During the weeks of protests, we heard Israelis express their fears for the future of the country's democracy. We wanted to know how the millions of Palestinians living in Israel, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip are viewing all of this. And we should note that Palestinian citizens of Israel have the right to vote in Israel, Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank do not. So we called Sami Abu Shahade. He's a former member of Israel's parliament, the Knesset, and he's a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Welcome. Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Alhamdulillah. I'm managing. I'm managing. You're managing. It's a, it's a very complicated situation. It's a totally new situation. We, we, we have never... I've never seen something like this. And there's so much to talk about, the massive protests, what may come next. But let's start out with this. What was your reaction to the proposed reform and and what immediately followed? We we, we totally oppose this reform, Scott, because it's going mainly 
to change the situation of the Arab-Palestinian minority who live as citizens in, inside the state of Israel. One of the biggest challenges that we have is that in Israel, there is no constitution. So there is nothing to defend the rights of individuals and any kind of collective groups within the state. Again, we were a little bit trying to defend ourselves from uh, oppression or from different attacks from the government and the parliament by heading to the high courts. Mm -hmm. But now the reform also wants to take from us also this option. So we will be totally under the oppression of the Israeli government. Did you have any frustration to see hundreds of thousands of people in the street protesting for democracy at this particular moment, given the fact that this has been a decades and decades long struggle with questions about representation and self-government in the West Bank and Gaza and elsewhere? Uh, yeah, well, what added to this frustration, Scott, are two main things. And imagine hundreds of thousands of people going to the streets, uh, claiming that they are struggling for democracy. But if someone wants to remind them that there is occupation, they would attack him physically in, in, in their demonstration. Another very important thing is that their main claim is to go back to the bad situation that was a few months ago, which means when the system was mainly against Arab Palestinians and was discriminating against us, from their point of view, it was totally okay. So from your point of view, this protest movement that came in the wake of this attempted change to the courts, for you, did that ring entirely hollow or did you think, this is a good thing. I just wish that there was this level of interest in the broader question of Palestinians. We we thought that it is good. Okay. And the fact that people are struggling and asking for democracy is, is something good. But we want it to be an essential democracy, a real democracy. Uh, we have been suffering out of racism and inequality for decades. In order to have a better future for everyone, we should change this system, which is built on race, whether now they are enjoying racism. What we are saying, in order to have a better future for everyone, we should target a political program that is built on justice and equality for all. This is the only any solution that we can find ourselves part of. We cannot find ourselves part of a Jewish democracy. We are not Jews. And we are the indigenous population in this part of the world, Scott. We did not immigrate to Israel. In our case, Israel immigrated to us. So what we were thinking, what we wanted to, to bring into the, the political discourse, into the struggle, into the dictionary of the demonstrators, that democracy is built on equality. Without equality, there is no democracy. I'm wondering what you make of the United States' role in all of this. We just heard a conversation about how President Biden is criticizing Prime Minister Netanyahu and that he is getting pushed back. But we've also talked about the fact that the United States is such a big backer of Israel and does have clout when it comes to Israel's decision. What is your view of how the United States has handled all of this? I mean, there's been decades and decades of of American officials saying we want to see a two state solution, trying to bring parties to the table to have those conversations. But do you feel like the U.S. is doing enough? First of all, I think that the American pressure on Netanyahu and his government to stop this judicial revolution 
was was very important and was very effective. But in the same time, we should say that Israel has been continuing its occupation and its discrimination against all Palestinians because of the backup and because of the support of the United States of America. We also think that the Jewish population, after all their sufferings, with their very hard history, should also be safe in a political system, in a state that would guarantee their, their individual and their collective rights. But in the same time, we don't want this uh, any acknowledgement to continue destroying our present and our future. Israel has been existing for 75 years because of the way the system was going on all these 75 years, Scott. There is no Palestine. Half of my people are refugees still today all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, today we prayed in Al-Aqsa Mosque. The millions of Palestinians who are in Palestine cannot come to pray in Al-Aqsa Mosque. In the next few weeks, uh, we will be going to pray in the church in Jerusalem. The vast majority of the Palestinian Christians cannot do that. We are asking for basic human rights, for, for, for basic things that everybody has anywhere in the world. You know, this is something that has been going for decades. This must stop. And we, we are struggling for a historical compromise. We want to see this conflict ending, Scott. Too many generations has grown uh, while this conflict was go, go, going on. Mm -hmm. We want to see it ending. You were a former legislator. What do you think happens next on the particular bill? And I'm wondering, do you think this was a moment where Netanyahu overstepped and may lose power? Or do you think he will continue to survive in the way that he has survived so many times before? First of all, the audience should know that the crisis did not end. Netanyahu did not say that he is going to stop the legislation. He said that he's going to postpone the legislation for a very short time and try to get into dialogue with the other side. But both sides are very far from each other. So uh, I think we're going back to the crisis in, in, in a few weeks. And uh, we don't know where could this lead because the last night before this uh, decision of Netanyahu to postpone the issue, I think we were, we, we were heading into a very violent situation within uh, secular Jewish groups and religious Jewish groups. I'm afraid we're going to get back into this crisis in, in a few weeks. That was former Knesset member Sami Abu Shahade, a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Scott. listening to NPR News. By day, Ari Silverman of Los Angeles, California is in his second semester of teacher training. But after school, the saxophonist and composer is jamming out. That was Augmented Blues, the first single off Silverman's debut album, Beneath the Canopy. I was just writing a lot of music and playing a lot, and I had talked about my goals as a musician, which were to become a music teacher and also become a performing artist. So out of that goal, my album Beneath the Canopy came together. 
I'm just a guy playing music. And the last year, I have been doing my student teaching, which I've just loved because I've gotten to combine being in the classroom and teaching music. That is the song Beneath the Canopy. When I came up with the title of the album and the title of this song, I was absolutely imagining the imagery of trees and a forest. It's a bit more of modern harmony and a modern melody. It was the last song that I actually wrote to complete all the songs on the album. Let my heart be open to every broken spirit, to those who try my patience, to those I have wronged and hurt. That is a, a piece of mine and a poem titled Meditation for the Turning of the Year. The poem that you hear me speaking was translated from Hebrew, and it was translated by my mom's father, my papa, Rabbi Harvey Fields. And that's a very important piece to me. So being able to include that poem on my album is a way of acknowledging him and a way of acknowledging my family and my spirituality as a Jewish person. If the moon turns green And shadows get up and walk around Clouds come tumbling to the ground If the moon turns green features the amazing singer Aaron Bentledge. And I just fell in love with this song from Billie Holiday's recording. And when I was thinking of songs to put on this album, I definitely resonate with love songs and ballads. If the stars turn blue And willows that week begin to sing When it changes into spring I feel very supported by my friends and family who have come to my shows and supported this album from the very beginning and are now seeing it all the way through. I feel like it's a token of my gratitude for them supporting me. And I've told all my students that I have released my very first album. And now that the album is out, I'm just really happy and grateful to share it with friends and family and new people. That was Ari Silberman. He's training to become a music teacher in Los Angeles, California, and his debut album, Beneath the Canopy, is out now. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. In sports, the Red Sox beat Baltimore at Fenway Park this afternoon, 9-5, to and the Bruins are leading the Blues in St. Louis, 3-1, to at the end of two periods. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See available menus and order online at volantefarms.com. Start your week with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow morning.
Former President Trump is expected to be arraigned in Manhattan on Tuesday. Wake up with Rupa Shinoy and NPR tomorrow for a preview of what to expect. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is running for president. The Republican is positioning himself as an alternative to former President Donald Trump just days after Trump was indicted by a Manhattan grand jury. Ted Olson, a former top Bush administration official who once supported prosecuting terrorism suspects at the U.S. military base in Guantanamo Bay, now says President Biden should settle the 9-11 case rather than pursue a death penalty trial. And Pope Francis celebrated Palm Sunday Mass at the Vatican. The 86-year-old appeared before tens of thousands of the faithful a day after he was released from a hospital where he was treated for bronchitis. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. State Supreme Court races are often sleepy affairs, but not this year, not in the current political climate, and especially not in the key swing state of Wisconsin. This Tuesday, a race for one seat on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court has broken national spending records. And that's because the winner could be the key swing vote on cases deciding everything from abortion rights to redistricting to potentially the results of the 2024 presidential race. This big little election has amassed so much attention and money that we wanted to hear from Sean Johnson all about it. He is Wisconsin Public Radio's political reporter. Hey, Sean. Hey, Scott. So big picture, let's start with the candidates and the key issues. So the candidates are Janet Protosewitz and Dan Kelly. And this is a nonpartisan race, but it's about as partisan as they come. Protosewitz is a Milwaukee County judge. Her biggest donor is the state Democratic Party. Kelly, a former state Supreme Court justice who was appointed by former Governor Scott Walker, has worked as a private attorney for the national and state Republican parties in just last year. This is a big deal race for us because it will decide the court's majority at a time when very big issues are on the way. If Kelly wins, it preserves the court's conservative majority for another few years, likely. If Protosewitz wins, liberals would gain a majority on the court for the first time in 15 years. And we don't obviously know exactly what would come before the court with this, this new justice determining the makeup. But what are some of the key issues that we expect will probably make their way there one way or another? Yeah, we're almost certain that there will be a case involving abortion coming before the court. When the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade last summer, Wisconsin's abortion ban, which was first written in 1849, went back into effect. There's a lawsuit challenging that ban on its way to the court. 
whoever wins this race is almost certainly to be on the court to when the justices decide it. And so you could kind of look at this race as deciding whether abortion will be legal in Wisconsin or not. There's also a chance that redistricting could come before the court. You know, Wisconsin is a 50-50 state, but under the legislative and congressional maps Republicans drew, they have held big majorities in Wisconsin for you know more than a decade now. If Protosiewicz wins, this court could order the maps redrawn. And, and a reminder that with the House of Representatives here in Washington so narrow, a couple new lines in a couple districts could possibly determine control of the House. So it makes sense that a lot of money is being spent on this race given these issues. Give us a sense of how much money we're talking about and the scope of this spending. It has totally smashed the old national record for a state Supreme Court race, which according to the Brennan Center for Justice, was 15 million set in 2004 in an Illinois Supreme Court race. Brennan's numbers now have Wisconsin's advertising spending at $29 million, a tally of all spending by a Wisconsin politics site called WisPolitics has it at 45 million. So you're looking at double or triple the old record and we're not done yet. Protosiewicz has received much of her donations from a large network of Democratic donors, including some big Democratic donors. Kelly's fundraising has been small by comparison, but he's received big money from outside groups. That said, there has been a late surge of Republican money. There could be a couple of reasons for that. It could be that internal polling shows that this race is close, and we've seen that happen in a recent Wisconsin Supreme Court race. It could also be that Republicans want to leave it all on the field for Kelly and not wonder what if in this election of all elections. So voters are being inundated with advertising. And the key issues here are issues that are really personal and people have strong opinions on. That makes me wonder what you're hearing from voters about all of this. I think broadly speaking, Democrats are hopeful of what they could gain if Protosiewicz wins. She's been very open about her personal beliefs on issues that could come before the court on abortion. She says she believes in a woman's right to choose. She calls the Republican-drawn legislative maps rigged. It's really frank talk from a candidate for the court But her supporters say they like that. Kaylin O'Connor of Madison spent a recent Saturday canvassing for Protosiewicz. She says she's glad that she's been open about her values. I mean, I know they're nonpartisan seats, but in this current climate, it's kind of impossible to be truly nonpartisan. And we certainly know where Daniel Kelly stands, which is against any kind of positive progress. So um, I'm I'm glad that I know that Janet is on our side um, because it would be really hard to make a choice without knowing that. And Kelly has a long history of working with Republicans. There are a number of Republican issues that his voters say could be up for grabs if he were to lose, but he's declined to talk about these issues, uh, saying it's not appropriate for somebody running for the court. Longtime Republican activist Sue Lynch, who supports Kelly, says she's okay with that. She doesn't think it's appropriate for a justice to share their personal values on issues like abortion when they're running for the court. No, no. I think Dan is, his campaign is based on the fact that he understands the Constitution and the office that he's running for and the boundaries in which he will act as a justice. So the 2020 presidential race was decided by the slimmest margin in Wisconsin. We know that there were all sorts of legal challenges to the result. You have to imagine 2024 will be close as well. Could this race Tuesday have any effect on next year's presidential race? You are definitely hearing people from both parties framing it that way. Ben Wickler, the chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, 
has been saying that the stakes are high because of that race. Uh, he was at a recording of a Pod Save America event in Madison, which was there to turn out the vote for Protosewitz. And he asked Democratic voters to imagine it's election night, 2024. The eyes of the nation are on swing state Wisconsin. Republicans file a lawsuit claiming some voting irregularities and the court's conservative majority stops the count. And record scratch, freeze frame, you think to yourself, in 2023, I had a chance to stop this guy from getting on the Supreme Court and casting that deciding vote. I think that says a lot right there, the fact that this high-profile national liberal podcast is is holding an event focused entirely on the state Supreme Court race. But the scenario that Winkler is is laying out, that isn't totally hypothetical. No, I mean, in 2020, you mentioned it. There was an extremely close decision on the Wisconsin Supreme Court in the lawsuit filed by former President Donald Trump uh, seeking to overturn President Joe Biden's narrow victory in Wisconsin. So we know that lawsuits will be coming in 2024. And while we don't know what they'll be, we know that this court would hear them. Yeah. That's Sean Johnson, political reporter at Wisconsin Public Radio. Sean, thanks for doing this and good luck between now and Election Day. Thanks, Scott. To err is human, to forgive divine, to correct, well, that's our job. It is time for a slight correction. And today we are talking about numbers. Now, numbers might sound simple enough, but we actually mess them up a lot. In one story about Elon Musk buying Twitter, we mixed up millions and billions. In another on the national debt, we mixed up billions and trillions. I could go on as a longtime Statehouse reporter. I made many of these errors myself, but today we are going to talk this through. NPR producer Lexi Schapitl is here to help us out. Hey, Lexi. Hey, Scott. So it kind of feels like numbers are one of our Achilles heels here at NPR. I think that is definitely fair to say. Million and billion, that's a really common one. And this happens a lot when we're talking about money, large mm-hmm. sums of money, budgets, etc. cetera. Uh, other times we'll leave off a zero. So 100,000 might turn into 10,000 or somewhere else. Maybe we add an extra zero where it shouldn't be and the opposite happens. And these are really easy mistakes to make, right? I mean, we're talking about just getting one letter wrong, moving a comma. And while they're tiny things grammatically, they make a really big difference in the scope of what we're talking about. It's so astronomical. I mean, it's tremendous. It's not even in the ballpark. Scott, I figured there was no one better to explain all of this to us two working adult journalists than a former elementary school teacher. I think that's the right instinct. My name is Ann Monk. I'm a retired science education specialist. I worked in uh, museums. I've taught at every grade level. Now I live on a ranch in the country and make mosaics and paint. So Ann Monk, like she said, uh, in the early 2000s, she worked at the University of California Museum of Paleontology. And what she did there is she developed curriculum for teachers to help their kids understand these subjects like evolution and the history of the earth. And of course, these things span billions of years. These numbers that we throw around in paleontology, millions and billions of years, are so huge. We have nothing to relate them to in real life. So... Anne made this worksheet. It's called How Big is a Billion? And it's got all of these examples in there of how a student can conceptualize a billion years. And so she asked questions like, how long would it take for you to count to a billion? Or how far would you walk in a billion step hike? So, Scott, why don't we try one of these? Are you ready to do some math? 
No, but yes, I, okay. I think I have no choice. So you're trying to save a billion dollars. Yes. And saving a hundred dollars a day. Mm-hmm. How many days would that take you? Hundred dollars a day. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um. I feel like my first answer was a thousand days, but I think that's not actually true at all. So I don't know. I'll say ten thousand days, but. We are in the gray zone where truly I have no idea. So I'm actually going to do the math myself and okay. double check this, but it's actually 10 million days. 10 million days, right? $100 a day. 10 You're, million. I guess that makes sense. It is 10 million days. We have now checked via iPhone calculator. <laughs> so you've got 10 million days divided by 365 days in a year. Gets you, I'll just tell you this one, gets you to roughly 27,000 397 years. It's going to take approximately 304 generations of your descendants saving $100 a day for your family line to get to the point of having a billion dollars. So by comparison, you would get to a million dollars in just about 27 years, which makes it seem like, oh, piece of cake, saving a million dollars. A million dollar deficit my neighbor down the street might have a million dollar deficit because they just built a big fancy house. But um, for, you know, the national budget to have a, a billion or a trillion dollar deficit, it's not even in the same league. It is so huge. The good news, Scott, is Anne had some advice for us. And, you know, it's very simple. You just have to check and check and double check. Which sounds like it could come straight from our editor's mouths. Lexi Spittle, thank you so much for uh, helping to enlighten us and helping to correct us. Oh, anytime, Scott. We always try to get it right. When we don't, you can let us know at corrections at npr.org. I want to be the very best. For a generation of kids around the world, Pokemon, the Japanese anime series about cute little pocket monsters, became more than just another cartoon. Kids grew up trading Pokemon cards at recess, playing it on Nintendo, munching on Pokemon cereal while cuddling a Pokemon plushie in their favorite Pokemon t-shirt. And of course, all the while, watching the beloved anime TV series. And for millions of children, the star at the heart of the series was 10-year-old Ash Ketchum, along with, of course, his trusty sidekick, Pikachu. Pikachu. Its name is Pikachu. Oh, it's so cute, it's the best of all. The show chronicled Ash's adventures as he acquires Pokemon creatures and trains them for battles on his quest to become a Pokemon master. That quest took a long time to complete, 25 years. But Ash never lost his optimism, and that's what many fans remember. Hi, my name is Lucas Egan. I am from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I watched right from season one. I was eight or nine at the time when it first started airing. Like, it, it hooked its claws in me. My name is Rochelle Valkel, and I am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I was super little. I remember the episode Bye Bye Butterfree, where in the anime, Ash's Pokemon Butterfree finds a mate. It was adorable. Ash ends up letting Butterfree go to live his life with his mate, and, and that was the first time I ever cried to a TV show. My name is Javier De La Vega. I live in Washington, D.C. So I began watching Pokemon when I was a kid. You know, within the first episode, you know, Pikachu gets hurt. And it was a very emotional first episode as like a eight-year-old to be like, I'm about to go to school. And then you're hit with this, this emotional like start to the journey of like you see Ash, who's like this really kind-hearted kid. And I remember being really influenced of like 
how important that was to sort of see that. My name is Abby Richards. I'm from Florida and Ash was always inspirational. He, he didn't get his go right away or he saw somebody who trained in a different way. He was able to readjust his outlook and learn from that. My name is Wilson Chaw. I am from St. Louis, Missouri. And I think the biggest thing I've learned from watching Ash Ketchum all these years was just be good to people around you from not even friends, family, even your rivals too, even the ones that you might not ever have a good relationship with. Each defeat was such a, a crushing defeat in the moment, but that didn't stop him from trying. He still attacked it with the same enthusiasm. That's something that as I've gotten older, I realized I always admired and respected about him and that I've tried to carry over that no matter what, if life kind of knocks you down, try and just get up, attack it with the same zeal and one day it'll work out. I think it was uh, cool to see that perseverance. It was important to learn that as a little kid. So at a young age, this basically taught me that even if you fail, you can always keep trying and you can always exceed no matter how many times you fail. Ash was pretty much the embodiment of what every kid in elementary school wanted to be in. And it was something that every kid wanted was to travel and see the world. It's a hard goodbye. It's kind of like saying goodbye to a friend. As painful as it is for me to see Ash go, it seems really amazing to me that a new generation of fans are going to get their own Ash, so to speak, uh, and go on a journey hopefully just as long for them as this one was. For the Pokemon fans out there and the new ones in the making, don't worry. There will be two new main characters to love and, of course, plenty more Pokemon creatures to catch. Pokemon!